So, here we are again. Sunday morning, we're continuing in Acts, the book of Acts. Uh, if you brought a Bible this morning, if you would turn to Acts chapter 7. If you didn't bring one, there should be one underneath a seat in front of you. You can pick that Bible out of the pew uh, or chair in front of you and turn to page 1083. And uh, join us in Acts chapter 7. As, and we've essentially be, been looking at and studying the birth of the church. We are here today because of what God did a little over 2,000 years ago in the Middle East with the church using his disciples. Now, last week we, we talked about um, expansion pressure, how the church is is growing at such an enormous rate and such a fast pace that, that there are people and things falling through the cracks and, and there was some pressure and some conflict going on in the church and we saw how they dealt with that. And, uh, and that, that is always going to be true. In any organization, there's going to be conflict and there's going to be things happen and we need to make sure that uh, we are looking into Scripture as we try and navigate those things and as we try and figure those things out. But... Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at persecution pressure because as the church is expanding, so is the opposition to the church. The more people that are believing, the more people that are being exposed to the people that are believing, that are resisting, that are coming against what God and the Holy Spirit are doing at this time. And in fact, um, this change, you know, where we as humans are so good with change, right? Uh, we just rush at the chance to change something in our life. Well, these changes aren't welcomed by everyone, and there's accusations all around. Now, have you ever yourself been accused of something? Have you ever been accused of something that just flat wasn't true? Have you ever read a Facebook post that you think might have been about you, and you're just like that? There's, it's not even close. How, how did you react to that situation? When, when somebody says something about you that's not true, how do you react and how do you respond to that? Uh, you know, it, and I think it's just getting, it, it's just like it's getting worse and worse in our culture. You know, you can say something whether, you can say something wrong about somebody out there. You just put it out there, right? And, and it, it could be intentional. It, it could not be intentional. But generally, it's intentional. You just throw it out there for people to read it and see it. And maybe you're kind of hoping that a lot of people will believe it, and then maybe later you, you post some sort of retraction, or, you know, we messed up and it really wasn't true. We, we didn't have our facts right, and, of course, that's on page 25, and, you know, people never get there to see that. And uh, I, I read something this week about Mr. Rogers and Captain Kangaroo. And, and I'm reading these things, and I'm thinking, wow, this is a really cool story, if it's true. And I did a little bit of research, and not even close. And I think to myself, what did this person have to gain by that? Why did they make, this, make up this incredible story about these two men? Because there were, some, there were some good things about Mr. Rogers, and there were some good things about Captain Kangaroo. Um, but, but they weren't anything like this person was. And, and the person that I saw it from, you know, they don't go to church here or anything, just, you know, read it, thought it was a great story, and... Click share, right? I mean, that's what you do on Facebook. You read things and you click share. Um, I read things and I think, which is bad because now I'm, you know, cynical about everything that I read. And that's not necessarily a good thing either. But anyway, I think it happens more and more. And I think it's only going to happen more and more 
as the end of the world comes, and who knows how long down the road that is, but um, the pressure, especially the, the pressure on Christians, on the name of Jesus Christ, is only going to grow stronger. And are we ready for that? Are, are we living our lives in such a way that, that we're fine, that I'm ready? I'm ready when confrontation and oppositions come, comes, I'm ready for that. I'm going to stand up against that, and we'll just see how the cards fall. Are you ready for that? Um, and, and we're going to see someone in, uh, in Acts chapter 7 who we're going to find was ready for that. So if you look at Acts chapter 7, and I'm covering the whole chapter today because I want to try and get as far through Acts as I possibly can in the next uh, four or five weeks. Um, but, but this is about Stephen, and Stephen was one of the seven chosen to be the deacons to feed the widows that were falling through the cracks. That's what we talked about last week. However, um, he's being falsely accused. He's being accused of blasphemy against Moses and against God. However, Luke records that he is full of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that's been given him. And in this power and in this strength, he presents his case. And at first blush, it seems a little odd to me because they're confronting about, about these things, but he, he's like going way back. Have you ever asked um, someone, uh, uh, have you ever heard someone ask to start at the beginning? Okay, okay, tell me, start at the beginning. You ever been asked that about a situation? And the person says, well, you know, long, long time ago at the county fair, my mom and dad met for the first time. You know, right? I mean, it kind of feels like that's what Stephen is doing. Um, he goes quite a ways back. But why does he do this? There's, there's purpose in this. Um, why does he give these educated, well-studied men in regards to the history of Israel and the law a history lesson? Why does he do this? Well, it's due to the charges. His defense, in fact, is that history proves just the opposite of what they're saying. He's saying that it's actually the leaders and Israel as a people who are having this stiff-necked response against God and what he's doing, and you guys need to see this is what's happening. They persecuted the prophets of God. They killed Jesus, the Son of God, and now they're attacking a man who is full of faith in the Holy Spirit. They are the ones, not Stephen, that need to be called on the carpet. And it seems that Stephen is in a position to do that here in chapter 7. But before we go any further, I, I think there's two things, two overarching themes that I want us to, to grasp as we wrestle with this passage today. And, and that's uh, two things that God communicates to us. They're encouragement and warning. Encouragement and warning. You know, as we see God's work in relationship with Israel over a long period of time, I mean from Adam and Eve, and, and you go through that, you see God's patience and, and how uh, long-suffering he is with a rebellious people. They get it, then they don't. They get it, then they don't. They get it, then they don't. And you just go, come on. I mean, you're seeing miracles. God is providing you, providing for you in miraculous ways. He's showing himself to you in a cloud and a pillar of fire at night. Yet you still wander off the path. Um, this is encouraging to me, because as we read in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, it says this, The compassionate and gracious God 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You see, God's not eager to punish. He's eager to forgive and move on with, with repentant and humble people. And as we well know, we all struggle, every one of us, with with things in life, and, and if it weren't for the patience and graciousness of God, he would have given up on me a long time ago. I mean, and, and that's encouraging to me. We're going to see that in this passage today. We should also see this in this passage, a, a warning. You see, he wants us to be warned that there can be an end to God's patience. You know, there is such a thing as resistance to the Holy Spirit that can only go so long and so far. Um, we see God handing a person over to the power of their own sin. Uh, if you look real quick at, at chapter 7, verse 42, it says, But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. Essentially, God says, look, this is what you want? Fine. He gets kind of to the end of his his rope with, with these people. We can resist him so long and want other things so much more than we want him that he finally grants our desire and says, okay, you can have that. I'll stop convicting you. I will stop giving you gracious feelings of guilt. And he hands us over entirely to our sin and ultimately as he says here in verse 43 to the demonic gods of Moloch and Rephan as it's described there there are a couple um, idols false gods that they had in their time um, if you're taking notes jot this passage down Romans chapter 1 24 to 28 Romans 1 24 to 28 and read that later today it, it speaks of this this warning right here now, ultimately, uh, God's encouragement and his warning, both these words are words of grace. They're words of grace. You know, if you, you know there's a fire in the basement of a building and, and it's not safe to be in and there are people like walking in there, what are you going to do? You're going to warn them. You're going to try to stop them. You're going to try and keep them from going into that building. And they may not understand. They may not get it. They may oppose you. They want to go in there. But it's really the best thing if they don't. We must remember that as we read Scripture and we hear from God, that, that as we surrender to Him in those times of discipline and warning, that we're going to grow. Our lives will be strengthened. When we realize that warnings and corrections are ultimately in our own best interest... <laughs> Um, we are more at peace in life. Now, let's take a look at our passage today. It's, as I said, it's extremely long. Um, and for the first 53 verses in Acts chapter 7, we're given the bulk of Stephen's message to his accusers. And essentially, it's Israel's history with God hitting the high points. Israel's history with God. Verse 1, then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Tell me, respond to this. And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Head west, young man, and stop when I tell you to. 
And so Stephen begins with these high points. And the first point that he makes is that God chose Abraham. It's the choosing of Abraham. But according to verse 4, and if we know the story of, of Abraham, he makes it halfway to the promised land, and then he stops in Haran, and he settles there. But God is merciful, and he does more than merely tell Abraham to go to the promised land. He actually then moves him out of Haran um, graciously. Uh, he exerts some special power on him. If you look at verse 4b there, depending on what English translation you have this morning, in the NIV it says it this way, after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. God sent him to this land. As Pharisees, they're hearing this, that Abraham was sent to them and uh, where they are living. Now, the New Living Translation says that God brought him out of Haran, and the King James goes as far to say that God removed him from the land. God moved him. God said, this isn't where I wanted you. So God's mercy begins with choosing Abraham out of all the people on the earth to inherit the promised land. Abraham obeys and starts moving in that direction from what, for whatever reason, gets distracted and stops short of the promised land. And then God, in his mercy and his grace, moves him on to eventually get to where they needed to be. Now look at the, the, the next uh, look next at the way Joseph, one of Abraham's great-grandsons, comes to Egypt from the promised land. Joseph's arrival in Egypt, verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. So Jacob's sons, and Jacob himself really in some of the things that he says, are resisting what God is doing. Because you see, God wants to use Joseph, yet there is great jealousy and there is great hate in his own family for this young man. They were jealous that God was speaking to him and not them. God was giving him visions. And they didn't like it. In fact, Joseph was implying, or at least these visions seem to imply, that he might someday be in a position over them. What older brother likes to think of their younger brother in a position over them, right? I mean, they, they, they sought to kill him. And one of the brothers convinced him not to do that. God saved him, verses 9b and 10 say this, but God was with him and rescued him from all his trouble. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. In other words, even in the midst of this jealousy and this resistance to God in the patriarchal family, God still does and moves. He's patient. He's merciful. He kept on working for their deliverance. They rejected God's word in Joseph's dreams, but God, instead of judging them, he used their sin to save them in the end. It's because Joseph went and he's in Egypt and God moves him to a high place that he's able to hear from God, store grain, be ready for the famine that's coming. And it's, jo it's Joseph's family then experiencing the famine, looking to be saved, end up what? Just like the dream said.
their little brother, the one that they hated, saved them. He saved them. The next illustration that that Stephen points out is the raising up of Moses. God raises him up as a deliverer for his oppressed people in Egypt. And, 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 you know, lots of people, maybe, maybe you don't, I don't know, but I think most people know the story of Moses. You know, he got floated in a basket down the river. And the Pharaoh's daughter finds him and picks him up and, and God, isn't he amazing? I mean, can you imagine that story? Could you imagine telling your grandkids that story? Well, when I was a boy... My parents floated me down a river, (laughs) right? Think about that. The Egyptians are raising a Jew. And then he's given, well, he learns a lot, for one. Uh, Let's see, in verse 26, he tries to break up a fight between two Israelites, Stephen tells them. Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But then in verse 27, these guys say, but the man who is mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? And and then uh, we know that Moses saw somebody, or, or Moses himself killed somebody, and then everybody starts finding this out, and then he flees to save his own skin. He flees, and he's in exile in Midian. But God, in his patience and his mercy, sends Moses back again. And in verse 34, Stephen says, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Then in verse 36, we see Moses, the rejected ruler and deliverer, saving the people. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Though they are wandering, they continue on a daily basis to see the power and miraculous work of God. He fed them every morning. Wouldn't it be nice if you could go out your front door every morning and there would be a plate of food on the deck or on the table for you to eat for the day? That's what God did for them. Now, I, I, I understand some of their whining because, you know, this manna, um, bread type thing, I mean, I suppose one could get tired of bread and water, but if that's all you had to eat, and it was free, and it was always there, uh, so uh, then Stephen moves on to the golden calf and the wilderness wanderings. For many of them, God's patience comes to the end point at this time. He turned away from them and gave them over to worship of the sun, moon, and stars. In other words, they reject him as the true God and, and they don't worship him. Fine. You know, God says, worship your idols that are made of your own hands. God gives them up to the reality be, behind all idols, namely demons. So verse 43 says, you have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. But even then, God doesn't stop showing them mercy. 
Verse 45, it says that the Israelites dispossessed the nations which God thrust out before our fathers. Even after this idolatry in the wilderness, I can't even imagine how that would make God feel. God fought for Israel as they overcome those people groups in the promised land. God fought for Israel and gave them a... He fights for them today, I believe. So Moses leaves camp. He goes up the mountain to receive the commands of God. There's all of this smoke and fire and noise coming from the mountain. Obvious God's power is right there having some sort of conversation with Moses. But you know, and I don't know how many days it was, Moses didn't come and he 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 didn't come. And And so what did the people do? Oh, hey, you know what? You know what we should do? This would be a great idea. Let's melt all of our gold down and make a calf and worship it and declare that it brought us out of Egypt. Come on. Uh, Stephen goes on, he gets to the point of the temple, the accusation against him, he points out that Solomon built God a house in verse 47, I mean this temple is it, it's a prized possession, and it was insinuated that Jesus was going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days, and in verse 48 Stephen says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. He's not talking about the temple, a temple made with hands. And right here we get to the heart of Stephen's warning for for us, I think, in this message. Uh, What was the root evil in all of this resistance to God's will? What is the root evil? In, in our resistance. Why did they resist the Holy Spirit, as it says in verse 51? And I think the key is in a parallel phrase in verse 41 and verse 48. In 41, Stephen says that they offered sacrifices to the idol and reveled in what their own hands had made. And in verse 48, he says, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. The root evil in many in Israel was that they got their joy, their fulfillment, their their meaning from what they were able to do with their own hands. It seems they wanted a kind of God and a kind of worship in which they could demonstrate their own power and their own wisdom and their own righteousness and their own morality and their own religious zeal. They got their joy from what they could achieve themselves instead of what God wanted to do in them and through them. Especially not from a God so free and so great and so sovereign and so self-sufficient that he gets all the credit. Come on. I mean, we want a little bit of that. He won't let himself be limited or controlled by anybody's man-made temple. Now, the temple in Jerusalem had become, for many in Israel, a symbol of what they could achieve. The work of their hands. I mean, you, you've done that before, right? You've, you've made something, you've built something, you've 
you've accomplished something and you set back and you go, wow. This happened to me actually last week. I was reading some newspaper articles that my mother had collected uh, from state basketball in 1985. Some of you in this room weren't even born then. Um, and, and I caught myself after reading a couple of them thinking, that's pretty good. I mean, it really sort of gave me a, I mean, I, I, it's like, yeah, it's fun to read these things about myself that people wrote in the newspaper. And, and isn't that what it's like? We, we sort of, we get this, yeah, that was me. And, and you know, I, I remember saying things like, I mean, it was, it was stupid, honestly. I mean, I, I averaged like nine points a game during the regular season, and at State, this, this Super Dave, unknown to me, sort of came out. And it went from 9 to 25. And, and I remember telling people, you know what, there's no way that was just me. There's no way. I had people telling me things like, you know, because there were a couple other things that, that I accomplished towards the end of my senior year. And I had a couple people say, you know what, David, I believe that God blessed you in such a way that he did so that your mother in the last year or two of her life could have some joy and celebrate with you in those things. That makes total sense. And it, 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 it takes away some of that, look what I did, and it, and it puts me in a humble place before God, and, and ultimately it really says, look what God did and the power of the Holy Spirit did in me through just simple things in life. And I think if we can all have that attitude in life, God can do so much more with us than he can with us kicking and screaming as we're trying to get through life. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that's doing what he's doing in Stephen's life here. I mean, finally, finally, Stephen talks about what Jesus actually destroyed. You see, he was the temple. That's what he was talking about. He was the temple that would be raised again in three days. He was the one who would become that which would change the universe as we know it. He wasn't talking about a building. I mean, he was talking about the fact that this religion that you guys, that God gave you, the law and everything that comes along with it, that you have been practicing and following obediently for all of these years, he's going to do away with it, completely change it. Jesus is going to fulfill all of these things that God has commanded you, And it's faith, and it's the reliance on the Holy Spirit for power, so that to God be the glory, not to me. Because you see, if I toe the line and I follow the law, I can end up at the end of that week going, wow, look at what a good life I lived this week. God must have given me an A+. But that's not the way it works. And I think the fact that we still see God working in our lives today, and we do, proclaims His amazing grace. Centuries, centuries of humanity acting just like Israel. Yet God continues to work. He continues to save. He continues to extend His grace to us. 
So I wonder this morning, and the second point is this, what's your history with God? What's your history with God? Where are you? What's going through your mind this morning as you hear Stephen talking about these things? Are you just trying to figure out the truth? Are you, maybe, maybe you're wondering if Jesus is even real. How can I trust what the Bible says about him? How can I trust what people tell me about Jesus? Maybe you're wondering if your life could be different. You are assertively searching for the truth. And maybe that brought you here this morning and and maybe the past few weeks. So I want to encourage you to keep up with that search. Because God doesn't wish for us to fail. He doesn't want to be quick to judge us and to discipline us. He wants to save us and he wants to save you as well. But know this, that the dark powers of this world would like to discourage you. They would like you to give up. Or maybe you surrendered your life to Christ years and years ago, but, you've, but, but you could honestly say this morning that you've wandered off the path, that you're not living your life for Christ, you're not making good decisions. Maybe you've fashioned a golden calf of some sort in your life, and you're serving that thing. And it could be anything, honestly. It could be sports, it could be a relationship, it could be a substance be a lifestyle. And, and you continue to pursue that because you're convinced that God left you high and dry at some point in your life. That, that you were experiencing this thing and he just wasn't there for you. You claim as Israel did several times that God doesn't care. Well, we see as we look through the history of Israel, and I think people that we know, we can see that 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 isn't the case, that God didn't leave them high and dry. And sometimes, I think in my own mind, I think, God, why didn't you just leave Israel out there in the middle of the desert and start over? That's not how he works, and we can be encouraged by that fact. He just moves slower than we want him to, right? Right? He loves you. Every one of us in this room. Everyone, if you're able to watch today, he loves you. I have no doubt about that. Maybe today is the day for you. Maybe today is that day where you've been searching intently, but, but, but you just kind of get it this morning. The Holy Spirit has called your name, and you just can't say, no, I pray that you would respond and believe. Take the opportunity of today to start your return. Surrender yourself wholly once again to your Savior. Maybe as you hear these words today or others in the past, you're taking offense. So you, who do you think you are to tell me what to do or what to believe? Maybe that's kind of what you're thinking. I think that's kind of where the religious leaders were in this day. I just don't believe it. I can't believe this is true. I can't believe this is happening. You just kind of figure, um, you know, science tells us how we came here and how life and all of that, and you're just going to tow that. And Well, I'm, first of all, thankful that you're here. I mean, if, if you're here and you've never, you know, been in a church before, it takes courage to walk into one. 
And I think that's great. Keep searching. Keep listening if, if you're able to, or if you're not here in town all the time watching from our church website. Follow us as we talk about the book of Acts. I mean, you listened, you're here today, or you're watching online, you're listening. Why not take the next step and begin to ask God through the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to answer your questions that you have? What's it going to hurt, honestly? Ask. This is a step that many in Israel were unwilling to take. Now, have you ever been adamant about something? Like you're, you're arguing with some, somebody and you know that this is true and you argue and you argue and you argue and then you sort of get the sense that maybe actually you're wrong and they're right. Have you ever been in that place? So what do you do? Oh, I'm wrong. No, that's not normally what we do. We dig our heels in and we sort of try to figure out how I can save face in this situation and not give in that they're right and that I am wrong. And I think that's exactly what's going on in uh, this conversation that Stephen is having with these men. And, and seriously, I don't know why he says this. I don't know why he chooses this. I, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, so he's, he's saying what God wants him to say. And he essentially drops the proverbial mic on the floor, and he says this in verse 51, You stiff-necked people! Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Zig Ziglar would say, that's not a good way to earn friends. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? Now, again, as he just reviewed history, it's staring him right in the face. This happened over and over and over and over again. And he says, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. The one who they predicted would become, the righteous one. You've received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it clunk now you can look at the heading in your bible for the next passage and know what happened next they'd heard enough and they attacked him they were so angry now most of the time in our own culture this doesn't involve death standing up to somebody and speaking the truth proclaiming the good news of the gospel Though there are many places on our planet where that is true today, and we need to pray for them. You see, point number three is this. We need to be prepared for persecution pressure. It's going to happen. All right, whose phone is that? Can you put my phone on mute, please? Thank you. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we, when someone persecutes us, we are in good company with the prophets of God. I mean, that's what we're doing is prophesying. We're proclaiming the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Blessed are you when people insult you because you see, they're really not insulting us. Though I think 
you know, Satan would like us to believe that. It's, the idea, it's, it's Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets. It will happen. When we live as children of God and speak as children of God and make decisions as children of God, there's going to be opposition. And we just need to be prepared for it so that when it happens, we don't go, where did that come from? It's going to happen. But we must stay the course because as I said last week, and I want to repeat this, and I may repeat this every week for the rest of this series, the Holy Spirit will provide you what you need. The Holy Spirit will provide us what we need. Stephen is dragged out. He's stoned. But even then, think about dying to stones. Look at verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. I think if I could only be that righteous in the end of my life if somebody was killing me in that way, and you know what? I think maybe I could be if I'm relying on the power of the Holy Spirit as I'm going through this process. And that's exactly what happens to Stephen. And then it goes on in verse 1 of chapter 8, and Saul, remember that name, approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. People ran for their lives. The stoning of Stephen created some boldness. I think we see that in our own culture. The more people succeed at, at, at hurting other people, the more boldness that happens in other people to do the same. And then it says, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. How would we react if that happened in our country? What would we do? Would we stand up and say, drag me off? Or would we say, ah, you know, on second thought, let me rethink this Christianity thing. Do you ever wonder if someone were holding a gun to your head, if you'd have the faith to say, kill me if you must, but I will not. I will not reject the name of Jesus Christ. Again, Lord willing, I don't know that any of us will ever be put in that position, but again, I think if we were, as I have thought about this, I honestly think you'd be able to say yes. In his book, Against the Flow, Oxford professor John Lennox notes that when God calls us to do something difficult, he gives us the strength when we need it, not before we need it. This was encouraging to me. Lennox illustrates this biblical principle with a story about an encounter with a Russian follower of Jesus who spent years in a Siberian labor camp for the crime of teaching his children about the Bible. Lennox writes, He described to me that he had seen things that no man should ever have to see. I listened, thinking how little I really knew about life and wondering how I would have fared under his circumstances. As if he had read my thoughts, he suddenly said, you couldn't cope with that, could you? Embarrassed, I stumbled out something like, no, I'm sure you were right. Then He then grinned and said, nor could I. 
I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in that camp was this. God does not help us to face theoretical situations, but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag, but once there, I found that God met me exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them for victimization and persecution. Lennox adds, we can be confident then that the Lord will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes our way, whenever it comes our way, and not necessarily a moment before. You feel weak today? That's okay. Stay the course, trust, and in the moment when you need it, relying on the Holy Spirit, God will give you what you need. One more story as we close. Derek Lamb is a, come on up, worship team. Derek Lamb is a courageous young Christian leader. Now, I found this illustration earlier in the week, okay? Derek Lamb is a courageous young Christian leader living in Hong Kong. Five months ago, literally five months ago, back in August of 2017, he wrote for the New York Times about the suppression of human rights for Christians in China. Lamb wrote, since I was 16 years old, I have wanted to be a pastor. I was raised in a Christian family in Hong Kong that urged me to live by biblical principles. Those biblical principles have also informed my democratic activism for the past six years, and it is for that reason that I am likely to be jailed next month and that I will be barred from ever becoming a pastor. Lamb provides examples of what he calls an unprecedented erosion of religious freedom in Hong Kong, especially for Christians. Believers forced to worship in underground churches, the government tearing down church buildings. The only way to avoid trouble, Lamb says, is for churches to stay quiet and small or to bow down to the current leader of China Xi Jinping. Now, uh, there's a little more to this story, but I came across this on Facebook this week. This is from the, the New York Times. January 12th, Chinese police dynamite Christian megachurch. That's what they did to the church, and if you scroll down, you can see what it looked like before they did that. The government is doing this to Christians. Days ago. But Lamb boldly declares, I won't make Jesus bow down to Xi Jinping, he concludes, although there is nothing I would love more than to become a pastor and preach the gospel in Hong Kong, I will never do so if it means making Jesus subservient to Xi Jinping. Instead, I will continue to fight for religious freedom in Hong Kong, even if I have to do it from behind bars. What I ask of you is to keep Hong Kong in your prayers as we seek to find light amid the sea of darkness descending upon us. This could be us in 25 or 50 years, asking other countries to pray for us. I pray that is not true and will not be. But regardless of what it looks like, as Christians, as Christ followers of those who are being changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what people do or think or say about us. We need to have the same commitment to the truth. Jesus Christ, crucified and living again today, 
the greatest message to the world? Let's pray, let's believe it, let's live for it, and let's even die for it if we must. And if we do, and if you do, you'll never regret it. You'll never regret it. Lord Jesus, thank you for this faithful man, Stephen, that we see who was picked to wait tables, but who was a, manly, a, a godly man. And Father, I pray that no matter what each one of us does here for a job or a career, Father, I pray that we would, that we would believe the truth. As Stephen is trying to convince these men to, to see it, I pray that if there's anyone here, Father, who has just continued to deny and deny and deny and, and, and just resist your truth, I pray that maybe today would be the day that they would just finally, finally give up and say, Lord, Jesus, come into my life and do with me what you may. I believe today that you are who you said you were and that you died and you rose again. Change me. Holy Spirit, fill me. And Father, I pray that, that, that we would proclaim that to our friends and our family and that, that, that it would be true of us, that, that we could be like an, an Acts church where faith in Christ and the salvation of those who need it spreads like wildfire amongst the people that we know and rub shoulders with. Father, strengthen us. Help us to stand. Help us to be gentle and loving. And I guess in some ways help us as Stephen did to drop the mic when we need to. Continue to teach us, Lord, as we continue through this series. We want to close with this song honoring you as the one who loves and forgives and saves in Jesus' name.